Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the way of product design. I'm Caden Damiano. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock its true value and tie your design work to business impact? This show interviews product designers, product managers, and tech leads from places like Google, Domo, Divi, IBM, Intuit, and Uber to find out what makes a valuable product designer and how you can be one as well. I am super excited to have this guest on today. Um, today I'm interviewing Jonathan Sherriat. Perfect. Um, <laughs> I, I always like ask before I interview, and I'll probably edit this out, but I always ask before I interview like how to pronounce the name, and then I like panic right when we're recording. <laughs> yeah. Did I already get for, already forget in the last three seconds? Yeah. yeah right. I have a feeling. Um, Jonathan designing for some of the world's uh, biggest brands currently at Google as an interaction designer, but he's worked on uh, companies, uh, products for companies like Project Ronin, Intuit. Um, he's an author of a O'Reilly book, which is a big deal, uh, Tragic Design. And we'll get into that a little bit more in this episode. And then he's also uh, the co-host of the Design Review podcast. Um Jonathan, can you uh, just quickly introduce yourself to the listener, just talk about your story a little bit, how you got to where you're at, and we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Caden. Um, my journey has been a kind of a long one. I've started out thinking I wanted to do animation, and 
um, moved into you know finding finding design and really being falling in love with it. I love the analytical and the, the human side of it and the creative side, like all wrapped together. And so I've worked at small startups and big startups. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, so it's all been in this uh, in this small, you know, little area here. But um, I've learned so much throughout the way and I just I'm really passionate about um, going really deep on subjects. So I'm really excited to go deep with you today. Oh, yeah, I think. Uh... At the end of this, the uh, listener's going to really regret how deep we go, but uh, at least uh, I'll enjoy it. I like going deep, too. Um, that's really cool. So uh, what, what part of uh, the Bay Area are you from? Like, I'm, I'm always interested to hear about the people that just, like, live there and, like, the whole culture there has just been a part of who you are as a person. Yeah, I mean, you definitely grow up. I mean, um, like my, some of my memories of growing up in school are getting all the Apple laptops from Apple and getting to try getting to try that out. So that that was an interesting part of it. Also, like I've seen so many like big farm groves just change over time to these really big buildings, or you know, there used to be nothing to do in San Jose at all. Now there's a lot of great food and different places to go. So it's been really interesting seeing that transformation over time. That's what's currently happening right now where I live in Lehigh, Utah. That's kind of the the hub of the tech company scene is there was just a lot of farms. Um, I currently live on top of what used to be a farm like a couple years Mm -hmm. ago. And uh, for, you know, on the positive side is some of those farms are mink farms and those places stink. And I am just glad we're (laughs) getting rid of those. I mean... Uh, it's good for the mink farmers because they're getting paid a bunch of money to move away. But uh, like, yeah, I, I could definitely see like how tech's just like basically like economically terraforming like so, geographic yeah. areas. Well, I mean, just the, the uh, sometimes I think about like how much our population grows like every generation. And the, I mean, it's just like eventually <laughs> we're going to be, you know, like that Star Wars city where it's like just covered in. Oh, in yeah. Like <laughs> this is whole and, world yeah. <laughs> is a city. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you wrote the book Tragic Design and compared to a lot of the O'Reilly books, it, the, the title doesn't really tell you what's in the, the book as much. Um, you know, other ones are like you know, mapping systems or articulating yeah. design decisions. Can you tell me a little bit about the concept of tragic design and like how you wrote that book? Yeah, it was, uh, and I was really happy with the support from O'Reilly because originally they approached me to write just a book. Um, I had been writing a lot, so they were interested obviously about design, not, not about any <laughs> kind of engineering thing, which I uh, could never create anything more than like a simple, uh, simple app. But, um, yeah, so I eventually was just writing about this story that was shared with me about this the, that about this young woman who passed away from cancer, and she had gone into the hospital. Um, sorry, she, she she was she had cancer. She didn't pass away from cancer. She came to treatment for that cancer, and the, the nurses that were taking care of her were so distracted with the software that they were using to write orders or chart their their work. They, they do that for like insurance purposes and, and other things in the computer software. And it was so annoying and frustrating for them that they missed the simple fact that this, this medication that they gave her is so toxic and needs hydration. 
um, like an IV fluid. And so the next morning she was found dead. And I remember just hearing that, and this this came from like a, a healthcare professional who was saying like technology is bad, and I'm, and, and I'm a designer, and I think all of us designers inherently just believe in some good potential of technology. We think that okay, if we can design it well, and we can really spend time thinking about all these use cases and all these people, we can create something that really helps people in some way, right? Um, and here, technology was doing the opposite. It wasn't even neutral. It was it was causing more problems. And the more I looked at that, and I looked at you know like the um, research to Era's Human 1999, and some some more recent ones have validated that it's a huge problem like in healthcare that these. And and then I also at Project Ronin, the last company, I got to shadow um, cancer care doctors and nurses and staff at a few different hospitals, follow them for around for days and just and actually just talk to them about what are your complaints. And I watched them use these software systems and it took them, I remember one doctor to make a, um, a, a regimen of, uh, of chemotherapy it took him almost 30 minutes and, and I couldn't, even, I lost count of how many clicks. I counted over a hundred in, in, in one minute <laughs> and I stopped counting after that. And the whole time, and, and we talked about this later, uh, my, co- my coworker and I, we were kind of just holding our breath as he was clicking around because he, he was typing things in and you know, and any, any mistake there could be lethal. And, um, and, these, and they, just over and over again, hearing from the, the staff, that this was just the worst part of their job, that they loathed every single moment of the day just interacting with this software. And it's just, it, it really bothers me. And so hearing all of that, like I wanted to, um, that, that opened my eyes and I wanted to write about that. Like, what is the impact of design outside of, you know, in increasing engagement or conversions? There's also some very real impact design has. and kind of also a gateway into design ethics where, okay, design actually has this, this um, one is it's woven into everything we do. Everything that is man-made has been designed. And so there is inherently this um, duty that designers have to create ethical and good designs so that we can create as broad a spectrum, about, as broad of a bridge to uh, technology as we can. and and also to craft a world that helps and makes things good instead of using all those tools for bad, you know, thinking about dark patterns or thinking about um, the, you know, the data privacy and all those kinds of things. And you also add on top of that, you know, maybe bias and uh, accessibility issues and other things that block people. And uh, I just needed to write about that. So um, I pitched that to O'Reilly and they were very open to that. They saw the passion I had, the passion that other people had, that, that, that initial blog post hit number one on Medium. And, um, and so we said, okay, this is the topic we want to pursue. And so it took about two years to write and uh, I, I was joined by my co-author, Cynthia, who's been amazing. Um, she's from Shopify. And we, we just kind of like started to map out all these different ways, did interviews, case studies, um, and also we wanted to make sure that woven throughout is what should you do? Not just like, hey, look, the world is terrible, but also here's how you fix it. Here's the processes you can put in place. And it's so exciting because now I'm at Google and I'm able to uh, you know, influence and implement a lot of those things as well as some of the other companies I've worked at. And um, it's really exciting to see that just that there's a lot of open reception to that. 
Yeah, like I, speaking of like medical devices, I met a uh, VP of UX at a big pharma company. I think they're based in Sweden. And he was talking about in his career where he designed uh, like radiation treatment machines, like things that like focus radiation into specific parts of the body. Mm-hmm. And in those use cases, you want to add a bunch of friction. Like, are you sure yeah. you want to shoot this person up with radiation? Like, have you aimed it right? Like adding that intentional friction because it's almost unethical to make that too seamless of an experience. Yeah, good friction. Yeah. yeah and actually, we we have an, a story about that exact type of device. Um, so there's there's a there's a there's a, a use case that a lot of engineers hear about in um, computer science degrees. Uh, unfortunately, design doesn't talk about it as much, but the Therac 22, I think it was, um, and it's that kind of a device. It, it um, you know, fires a you know um, a lot of energy into the the cancerous area, and it's, it needs to be you know really honed into the exact dosage. And there was uh, the case of alert blindness, like it would warn you that something was not uh, calibrated correctly, but because that would happen so often people would just got alert blindness. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, clear out all the alerts and continue. Um, and so alert blindness is a really big, and also like if you go into any kind of hospital, like if, if, if someone you, you love is in urgent care or maybe a, or has a baby or anything like that, you hear all these beeps and alerts and sounds all throughout the day. And that's a real thing that I know the healthcare hardware industry is really trying to bring down is if you hear a beeps all the time, it really just means nothing. It reminds me of, um, uh, the the quote if you highlight everything you highlight nothing mm-hmm. um, and so it's just it's just one of those things like it becomes alert blindness oh yeah the Incredibles if everyone's super no one's super <laughs> yeah that's what you're <laughs> yeah, that's what perfect. you're quoting I think you're paraphrasing it but um, <laughs> the you know I was actually just at the ER with my wife uh, she's fine uh, but like I just I always like panic when the heart rate machine would beep and it just meant that it was like checking her heart rate and it'd just go like beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, is something wrong? Like, yeah. no, it's just signaling that's checking your heart rate. And I don't really know why it's so yeah, alarming. This needs to be plugged in within an hour. And so you hear beep every 10 minutes and, and then you don't know that between, you know, something really bad is going on or something like that. Yeah. So well, tragic design almost sounds like um, a book on design ethics and you know it's obvious there's obvious stories of like the worst case scenario um, but like when like what how does like tragic design apply to probably some lower stakes products I wouldn't say the lowest of stakes like like fintech if, if you design it wrong someone spends money that they didn't need to spend or mm-hmm. Um, free trials, uh, like not notifying you when your free trial is about to expire or something like that. Like, how does tragic design inform the rest of us that aren't like working on like uh, medical devices? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think that's one we get a lot because people are very attracted to the book from the first chapter, which is about those that physical harm, death, you know. Um, injury and things like that, which we all in, like very easily understand the ethical implications of those things. If you design an autonomous car and it doesn't, you know, hand over the brains to the driver in a safe way, we get that that's not ethical. 
but I, uh, we, you know, there's other chapters of the book where we talk about how design can anger and sadden. And this is really interesting because that's something that we are a lot more okay with. Mm. You know, like the, the death by a thousand cuts or, you know, um, if you if you push over a child, is that ethically wrong? Yes. But, you know, if you do a little something wrong over here and, and over here and like we're okay with it because it was software and it's okay. But those things are important and they actually carry some weight. And especially um, when we're, we're talking about technology and we're talking about scale, you really have to understand the scale of these these ethical decisions. If it's a small um, issue, you know, you, I, I don't know why I, I, I have a I have a, a child, so I have a child children on the mind. But like, I can't imagine like pushing over a child. But if someone did that, I could forgive them, and that you know that's fine. But imagine someone goes and does that a hundred thousand, a million times. This person is you know is going to be known for all time as being the worst person ever. Yeah. Um, so. We do that all the time. Like we, we make our users go through the huge loops and waste, let's say, 10 minutes of their time trying to cancel, multiplied by thousands of people who want to cancel every month, multiplied by yearly, and, and, and it really does add up, and we need to care. It's really easy for us to, to think of these as metrics and things, but these are users. They have real lives. You're really frustrating them, and that does matter. Yeah, like... Uh I, I was having a debate at work because, you know, I'm a, at a big legacy company. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a legacy company now. They've really done a great digital transformation, but they have these legacy products, um, which aren't that sophisticated, you know, and they're, they're, and they're basic like form, uh, like form based interfaces, just in, entering data, submitting an application. Um, and, I, I was debating someone like they just said like, Hey, like, you know, talk all the crap you want about it, but it's, uh, it's usable. It's a usable product. And I'm like, yeah, but it's also a, a very fragile user experience. Like if anything goes wrong, it breaks and you have to call customer service. Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't, um, account for the complexity and the nuance that a customer's going through while they're using it. And we have customer calls where they have to call customer service. And, um, you know, we serve people that are a little bit on the lower rung of like credit. So like we're in a lot of ways, they're kind of a captive audience. Like we're their best Mm -hmm. shot at like financing a purchase and that they feel like they're a second class citizen if they have to jump through all these hoops just to get a couch. And, um, and I basically thought like, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's, it may, it may talk all of the crap you want about this product, but it generates like millions in revenue every year and stuff. And I'm like, it might make money, but it's not a good product. Is that really like a, a successful delivery of value or have we designed, or has that product been designed to extract value from people? And I think that's the difference. Like a good product delivers value. Whereas like some products, it's really easy with technology to extract value at large scale. Yeah, and um, you know, he, might, that he or she might be right in some sense, but in, there's also risk. Bad design gives uh, risk to competitors, to um, parallel products, mm-hmm. where this person's need as soon as 
they can find a better experience elsewhere and, and, and satisfy that same need elsewhere, they'll easily go. If, um, if you've done a decent job at your experience, then they have to learn a whole new system. There's the opportunity cost of switching. And if it's a bad user experience, people will pay that opportunity cost just to spite you. <laughs> hmm. But if you even have just a decent experience, um, that opportunity cost will will save you a decent a big chunk of your users. And then if you have a great user experience, the opportunity cost um, becomes even larger because people say, okay, well, I'm, I love it here. Maybe that costs a little bit less, or is, mm -hmm. is it may have another feature, but it's really not. So it's even stronger of a of a thing to stay. And another thing I would add on top of you know the, the ethics for you know everyday um, type of, of companies who don't feel like that in that first category of physical harm is also uh, bias and, and, and exclusion. Um, so how do we create inclusive design? Because you know, if certain types of people aren't able to access your application, as an example, to get that financing, that could make a really big impact in their lives. Um, maybe you know it, it just seems like it's only made for you know um, you know dudes or something, or maybe mm -hmm. it you know um, is not accessible, and so you know people who who need it who are, who have those issues aren't able to to get access to that funding. So. Um, those are also something that just cover every single type of product or company, however big or small. There's there's a a, a certain level that you need to apply and to and to worry about. Yeah, definitely. So, like another flip side of like tragic design is that tragically you lose business <laughs> if you. <laughs> Um, which, you know, I, I think that's the beauty of, uh, capitalism is that, uh, the people, the, the bad players go out of business, but, um, you know, I, from what I'm getting from like your, uh, your whole like thesis here is that, you know, most companies fall outside of the physical harm, or at least they don't have a direct correlation with physical harm. They might, you know, it might compound over time before they cause any like real damage. Um, and that causes like a lack of a sense of urgency. And basically like what you're saying is, is that there really is like, even though we've really gone leaps and bounds in design and adoption of good design practices and companies, there's really there's still a gap between good intention and execution right yes yes there is a big gap there and uh, I think you know they, I love that that saying of like the road to hell is paved with good intentions and it it, it it you know maybe it counts for something in relationships just that there was goodwill there but at the end of the day damage it needs to be repaired and so you know, if you talk about a relationship, if you do something you know, and you had good intentions, but you still hurt them, you need to figure out it's, it's on your responsibility to, to mend that and make it better. And it's the same thing with um, intending, you know, not to harm people or exclude people is fine. But um, if you're not bothering with it, you're not trying to improve it, you're not making it better, um, that's that, then, then you're equally as guilty. And so we really need to give focus to ethics and really think about it and one thing that we find is it's really hard to make some of these decisions. There's these gray areas we find ourselves in. And if we haven't given thought to the space at all about what our ethical red line is and, and what we'll do within the gray line or um, 
what things we were okay with and not. And especially as a team, like agreeing to certain principles that will help guide us through those decisions, we're not going to make the right decisions. It's going to seem like it makes so much sense, business sense to do X versus Y, unless as a team we've pre-thought about it and it becomes very clear that this is up against our team principles. And what I found is a lot of people feel like this is a burden. It's not. Accessibility, aside from being the right thing to do, is great business. Um, there's a lot of benefits that come to accessibility, like you know, just to name a few, search engine optimization. It improves a lot of things for um, your your uh, other users as well. For example, like you know, captions. Everyone uses captions on videos. Tabs. Your power users will use um, tabbing around as well. So. Um, there's also uh, other benefits to it as well. And the same thing goes for all the other ethical type things where you're avoiding harm, you're avoiding hurting your brand, you're, um, you know, in, in the long term, you're helping invite as many possible users to your product as possible. That's a good thing. So aside from being the right thing to do, which should be reason enough, it's also very good business. And there's a lot of research out there to support that. Yeah, for sure. Like the... The um, do you think that maybe there are some like there's some flaws in like design frameworks that might make it harder for us to do this? So, for example, personas, you know, getting into like demographic data and stuff like, oh, like this Sally is a Harvard professor in Boston, um, that differentiates from like Joey, who is a um, d- dumpster truck driver in Texas, like that, the way that we craft the, these like empathy artifacts makes us think that these two people are different, but they have a lot of things in common. They both need to pay rent. They both need to pay their taxes. And like, do you think that there is, there's inherent flaws in, um, the current design processes and frameworks people use that might prevent us from incorporating ethical principles into our products? That That's an excellent question. And I think we all kind of feel that the answer is, is yes, but um, it, it always will come down to, no matter what tools you use, if, what terms you use, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, we call them users and that's part of the problem of, you know, why we treat them this yeah. way. and. It, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is us. <laughs> and so, you yeah. know, personas, the, the problem is that we have these inherent biases and we have these, um, you know, certain world perspectives that are kind of locked in. And, and, um, and so when we approach these problems with different tools, those biases get um, inherited into those tools and, and we kind of use them in those, in those improper ways. So... Mm-hmm. I don't. I wouldn't say like any specific process or tool is 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 bad and is causing those problems. But there is the opposite effect where sometimes if you have certain processes and tools, it helps push push you more towards opening your like remembering or recalling the fact that you know there's there's other types of groups out there. Um, that's good. You know, like we use a lot of uh, user journeys and things like that. Just just kind of like erase all the. Um, irrelevant information about is this you know a woman or the, their color or whatever like what what type what uh differentiations of user you know tasks and journeys um really make sense to help us understand how we're gonna 
effectively design the product. And so usually that's about like different types of tasks and different types of needs because people are so varied. Like it'll be like here, there, and the other thing. And one thing that nice thing that personas can do sometimes is help synthesize a lot of research and make it quickly applicable. Um, and so it can be helpful there, but you know, in our book, we talk about a lot of different other types of processes that you can put in place, um, checks and, and balances that will help you to make sure that you're not designing unethical products or you're avoiding harming your users. Okay. So like, what are, what are some like good frameworks for establishing your values Like what is ethical design? And I think those change like per company, right? Like what does good ethics look like for our company? Like is what, what's a framework that you could do to really establish like your values so that you could guide your design decisions? That's a great question. I really believe the most important thing you can do to affect change within your company, aside from bringing things up, which we talk about in the book, just bringing something up is one of the most powerful things you could do because then it becomes a subject matter. Of, even if someone declines you and says, no, we're not gonna do that, it really changes the the environment of that uh, of that question. You, you, you know, everyone now has to uh, uh, purposely decline that thing or avoid that thing. So it, it's really powerful. And then the second thing is is coming together as a team and having a discussion. And this can be, you know, um, I would say like, you know, like a workshop type thing. Maybe it's like a three hour um, discussion, a one time for your team um, and come together and, and talk about these issues to say, okay, what are some of the risks that, that can come into our company that we see now in the assumptions? And oftentimes that's going to be accessibility. It's going to be um, some some sort of biases that we might have. Um, and then also the other risks that you, that you might have. And, and you can kind of frame it as, as like, hey, these are, these are risks to our company. Um, and, and come together on like, what things do we see in the future where we're gonna need principles to guide us against those decisions? Um, I talked to the CEO and the co-founder of Intuit on like my first month at Intuit. Mm. Um, I emailed them and said, hey, I want to talk to you about design ethics. <laughs> and so to their credit, they both accepted, which was amazing. Wow. And I got to, to you know discuss it with them. And while I know Intuit, especially the, um, the tax side of the house, um, has a lot of ethical issues, um, I did like the qu- one quote that I heard from the co-founder of, of QuickBooks, his father, he actually. He said, uh, go nowhere near the gray line. And I, I love that because I think that is a great way of, of operating. And, you know, you, there's a lot of things that kind of you're not sure about. Like, hey, well, is it unethical to, you know, we'll get a lot more signups this way. Or we'll get a lot more email notifications out this way. And if you're not sure, it's better to just err on the side of, um, of caution and, and creating a better experience. And what I found is that really initiates and pushes out, like it, it, it spurs innovation. That's the right word. Mm-hmm. It spurs innovation. Uh, there's a great use case in the book from Ford, the Ford uh, Pinto. Um, and it's a great like economics. It come, usually comes from like the economic studies. Um, and it's, it's about engineering design, not like uh, our design, but, um, but it's really interesting because of a lot of different reasons, which we discuss in the book. But the, the, the short, short of it was that they, 
figured that there was a problem and the problem was that people were getting trapped in their cars and it was uh, igniting all uh, the, the gas. They, they recognized the problem, um, but they, the engineers came up with one, the first you know, like solution they could think of. It was too expensive. The market was very, very competitive. So they felt that it was worth it for them to just go out and just pay out any kind of damages that might happen. Terrible. Uh, but also, once the um, once it got really, really bad and it was a lot worse than they thought and it was going like, to take out Ford and, and the lawsuits were just piling up, they went back and the engineers came up with a, a ch much cheaper solution, which was actually, I think, like a third or a fourth of the initial price and, and would have been um, something that could have gone out with the original car and kept the cost very close to the same. So this is a, such an important point because oftentimes we feel like, well, we can't, we can't worry about this. We can't, you know, we need to ship this. We need to X, Y, or Z. And we, we come up with excuses that being so ethical or so accessible is going to slow us down. We're a startup. We need to move nimbly or whatever the excuse is. And in reality, these limitations are good limitations. One, we already talked about, there's so many benefits, not to mention it reduces risk to your company. You could get sued, you could get, um, people get really angry at your, at your product and, and leave. But also it spurs better innovation. You come up with, okay, well actually, instead of tricking them into this checkbox, why don't we um, you know, bring up that information over here and make this, this moment for them to like celebrate their purchase or something. You, know, you come up with better solutions because you've limited yourselves to only ethical solutions. And so you think of ethical solutions. Mm. Yeah, the, I, I really like the gray area. It kind of reminds me of, uh, it's like this tip I learned when I was in college and I'm like, should I eat this uh, old sandwich? in in the fridge and it's like when in doubt throw it out <laughs> like yeah <laughs> like it's it, if it's an idea that just makes you feel like there's no like clear-cut like answer to it just don't mess with it like um and i think the easiest place for that to happen is probably like in marketing you talk about startups right i think one of the most unethical things is to over promise and under deliver you know, to get signups and they're like, okay, well we'll get them on the platform and then we will address the lack of those value propositions even existing. So like vaporware is like uh, one of them, yeah. right? We'll build it. We'll, we'll tell them we have it and we'll collect signups and then we'll build it because then we can gauge how many people actually want it. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I, um, you, you said something else when we talked before, that um, the concept of ethical design is always something that can be pushed pushed down the court, or that you know, just like that it can be handled when you're profitable. Um, like that, it's often confused with final polish. Yeah. Um, you, you said you had concerns about. And we don't need to talk about specific projects, but you did say you had concerns about um, the tax side of the business for Intuit and stuff like that. Um, like what, like what, hmm, I'm telling you not to talk about it, but the question's kind of like leading you to talk about it. Um, how do you approach um, 
like ethical discussions without being preachy. Like so, yeah. f- so for example, like I mean, and I, I know, I know that uh, this is probably like adjusting the question a little bit, but um, in philosophy and ethics, the thought experiment is usually the tool to do that. Do you is that something similar to like what you you would use to bring it up? Um. I've I've never done that, but I think that's probably a better way than I've been doing. No, um, yeah. what I've found is that most people want to do good in some sense. Um, so, and, and at least you can approach it that way with that assumption, like that positive assumption of like, hey, I've identified this thing. How can we fix it? You're not um, focusing on blame. You're not focusing on um, like shame or anything like that. It's just, hey, look, here's a problem that we need to fix. And that's usually the way I approach it and I go about it and it's it's proved well so far. Um, because if you come in and say like, how could we design, we're an evil company, we're, then <laughs> now they have, now there's two things that they need to agree to instead of one. That there's a problem and that we had evil intentions or that we are bad in some way. And nobody, and also, you know, with the, uh, fight or flight type of mentality. People will get very defensive, even if you're right. But if they if they feel attacked, they're going to be defensive, and so it just starts you off on the wrong foot. So I found that just being very practical and analytical about it. Maybe that's just my personality, but like I'll come out and say, "Hey, here's a problem that I've identified. Here's my support." Uh, like kind of like a setting up a, a paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here's here's the problem, and then here's my supporting points. Um, and here's how you know we can start start addressing it. But I'm also open to you know opening up the floor to you know more solutions and um, you know so for like in the sense of some of the things that I've I've addressed in, in past companies is sometimes all it takes is hey I see this as a problem I think it's going to affect these type of people let's fix it and it and it gets prioritized or you know put in the roadmap somewhere somewhere yeah other times it's like no we're doing it. And I remember one one case uh, that I can't talk about was like a because it was fairly long time ago, so it could be one of my last companies. <laughs> I'll hmm. mix them all together, but um, there was a dark pattern, uh, and I was like, you know, th- you know, we're, I feel like we're tricking users into the yearly plan here, and I, I don't, I don't think we should do this. And it came up to the the VP of I think marketing or something, and he said, no, we're putting it in. And I felt really like really bad about it, but we shipped it, and I didn't I didn't leave it there. I knew that this VP really spoke in numbers, and so I was like, okay, I really need to create like a supporting structure on like why I think this is bad. So I talked to support, and I got in some information from them about how many additional calls this costs us, what what that means mm-hmm. as far as their cost and uh, um, you know running costs. Um, I talked to our like marketing team who who would look at um, our customer satisfaction numbers, and I got the hit that we were taking on that. Uh, I talked to like our social media team and got some like tweets and stuff that they're hearing and put them all together and put some and also the the analytics team and got I got looking there was a big initial spike of of signups and revenue, but it's actually going back down and also um, there was some negative impact that was starting to trend to. So I put it all together. I brought it to him and I said like, look, this this is gonna this hurts us in the long run when we do these types of things. And so I, I saw his eyes light up. He got really happy and he's like, great, let's cut it, let's do it, let's let's let's, let's hmm. go back to that. And I think after that the culture changed a lot because. One, the design team, you know, we made sure that we always had 
you know, his data to back up, of course, um, any kind of use cases or anything like that. And then also dark patterns is, is one of the greatest things, like um, being able to give a pattern a name is so, so powerful because you call it a roach motel, Th- those, those types of names stick in hmm. people's minds. And then suddenly now everyone's identifying Roach Motel as well. Don't you think that's kind of a Roach Motel? Uh, it's easy and difficult out. And it, and it really helps guide the team because everyone has that vocabulary to identify these things. And it feel, when it's like a, a thing, yeah. it's a lot more e- easily defensible versus, oh, Jonathan feels kind of weird about this versus no Jonathan identified this is a roach motel and look you know this is an established pattern that people are, people online have identified and is a worldwide phenomenon you know, you can, so I think darkpatterns.org was a great way and I think the more things we can name like that and yeah. document uh, is really going to be a powerful uh, tool in, in, within your company yeah words are powerful the uh, like I feel like any of the biggest breakthroughs I've had in like my perception of the world I have learned a new word to help me articulate what the problem is. Like, um, did you feel concerned about them pushing towards an annual plan because you feel felt like they didn't provide enough value to you be used for a year? No, it was the they were hiding that you were signing up for an annual plan. Oh, um, yeah, that's, it that's felt bad. like you know we were sh- like you know, and a lot of companies do this. They they show you uh, when you're signing up mm-hmm. that you're it's this much per month, and you say yes, and you move on, and you you miss the fact that that maybe the yearly toggle was switched on or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. Like it's it costs this much per month, and then and like a tiny disclosure, paid annually. Yeah, exactly. and, it, and and it's not even like double A like legible like text either. Um, yeah, that that's cool. So I bring up the thought experiment because I actually just thought about I've been thinking about this a lot, right? Because I think principles and like frameworks are great, but um, like be ethical or hustle or you you just have to work. Um, aren't very actionable like philosophies like I mean there's just so much nuance uh, to something like that um, like for example like I'm a I'm I'm all about transparency and you're a hiring manager and you're like okay I'm all about transparency I'm gonna be very transparent in the hiring process and it's like okay well, let's do a thought experiment like what if your transparency makes them feel a little too open and then they say something that makes you feel uncomfortable like how open to, are you to transparency now? Because you feel uncomfortable, and that's biasing you to hiring them when they could be a, a good candidate. Like how transparent do you want to be? Like what? Like what do you think? Like would, would be great ways to like? Like, uh, do you think like the thought experiment, like a thought experiment, could be attached to like a pattern, like a, a Roach Motel, and you could have like a more of like an ethical discussion? about it like I'm, I'm thinking out loud here but yeah i mean i think thought experiments are, are really helpful to take the current situation out and and think of it at a fundamental level but sometimes when you're trying to affect change at, at work it's 
sometimes sometimes it can do more harm. It depends on the, on the person and the, the context. But yeah, you know, if, if you're if you're trying to get them to agree to that at a fundamental level. Um, you're you're agreeing to a much more difficult thing. Like for example, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, for that that example, maybe That's you were true. trying to get them to be more transparent in a specific types of ways, um, and the thought experiment makes you kind of lose sight on like what we were actually talking about. And and I mean, mm-hmm. it's really good. Like if you and I wanted to go deep and and wax like philosophical around like transparency and like what's the right level, and then you would want to get into that. So it's just kind of picking like what's the right tool for the right situation. Yeah, that's true. Um, something you mentioned earlier is like the real the real key, especially like for our industry, is not focusing so much on um, the people. I mean, as much as like the the tasks that they need to accomplish, and and kind of generalizing it and abstracting it to like, okay, well, they need to pay their taxes. Like it's it doesn't matter how they got there. Like we can't judge how they got to this point, but they need to be able to do this task and you focus all the discussions on like the 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 design of that task um that workflow um is that kind of like that is that like a safety bar like is that like a safety net to like prevent us from getting into like manipulation mode like is that at least one safety bar yeah yeah i think that is a good safety bar and and, I, and again, like if you and your team have talked about this at some point before yeah. and come up with some principles and and you write those principles at the top of your, you know, um, your deck that you're giving for about this feature, like, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, when a, a, a decision comes up in your discussions as a product group, you're like, hey, I think that goes against the principle we, we established, you know, um, last year or whatever. So... It, that also is such a powerful tool. Like, you know, we also talked about, you know, giving giving them words. It's kind of like that where you, you instead of saying, I feel, I feel, you get to say like, we said, or we established over here. It just has like, a, it carries so much heavier of a weight and um, affects so much more change. Obviously still bring things up that does help mm-hmm. um, and, and keep bringing up, be that like annoying constant like hey yeah what about this what about this because then people start to see the world the way you do and and they'll start doing the work uh, too I, I found that time and time again yeah so it's establishing kind of like your product principles before you even like get into the the project so like for example um like you want this like uh aspect of the product to be flexible like because it needs to work with a bunch of different business domains I think a great example is like, uh, let's talk about Google since you work for Google. It's a Google like authenticator, like mm-hmm. the authentication experience to get you into any any Google product. It needs to be flexible. But if someone's making design decisions like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if they're like logging into Google Docs that like you could add, add this questionnaire to it to like help set up their Docs experience. And then you, you could just ask mm-hmm. them like, does this kind of fit like the principle we had to be flexible, to make this flexible? to a lot of different products. Like, is this gonna hurt other experiences in other places if we make this decision? Are those the kind of conversations you're talking about? Yeah. Because they're not necessarily, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like it's not necessarily like an ethical principle, right? But I mean, it could, it's like a principle that is tied to like ethics, but it, it might be like a design principle that's a little more broad, right? 
Yeah, I mean, and des- your design principles will will run the the gamut. Like, um, it could be that they have you know very ethical uh, connotations, and then maybe they are a little bit more just like these. This is the exper- type of experience we'll want to create, and so having that discussion will also give fruit to those types of principles as well, which will help increase, just create a much better experience. Like that's mm-hmm. another thing I really want to drive home is that this doesn't um, weigh you down as you try to, you know, make progress. Yeah. These limitations will just like create like a fast track for you, right? Like mm-hmm. design, designers thrive on limitations. And so when we give ourselves good limitations, we create good output. And so good ethics limitations creates much better output. We think of much better solutions because we've framed it better. Yeah, the you know, Ryan Ryan Rumsey, he talked about um, when he goes to consult like design organizations about uh, business thinking, he'll go to the design team and he'll ask them to like write down like four words on like a sheet of paper, like each one individually, like to you, what is good design for your company? And then he asks the question rhetorically, like, do you like do you do you think that everyone's going to align on their four things? And it's like no, like they're going to, we're all going to th- have different opinions on what good design is. Mm-hmm. And he he always starts by aligning them on like, okay, as a team, you need to define what good design is for the company because if you have different values, you guys aren't going to be aligned on like especially as the team gets bigger and the product space gets more complex, like you guys are going to misalign on those experiences because it's not, you're not going to design better experiences with those less constraints. Like you all need to agree on like what the principles are. Um, And uh, you're, you're also reminding me of like something that JB Joukowsky says, and you know, he worked for Intuit. I don't know if you guys ever crossed paths. Yeah, we did. Yeah. He's a good friend. Yeah, he he always talks about how he just defaults to asking about people's principles. He doesn't like critique, and this is something that I've applied in my work, like my practice, that I don't critique the actual idea. I I critique the principles that got them to that idea. Like so, yeah. Like what what made you like what made you think that this was like going to be the right solution? And then you start talking about the principles that got him there. And then you could start having like a more like meta discussion about the principles. And then, you know, if their principles are solid, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. But most of the time they're like, oh, well, I just thought this was a cool idea. So on dribble and <laughs> yeah, principles, we actually had the on the design review podcast. We recently did a podcast about design principles because it's, it's such a useful tool to say at the each and every like pro, uh, project you're doing, either you inherit principles that are gonna guide you from your just your product area that you've defined, or you create some sub principles for this project specifically, and that'll help you guide. And one of those one of those principle lines should be about ethics, mm. and of course there'll be other ones too. And again, what are principles? But um, things that that help define you, right? Like the things that you, how you'll make decisions on future problems right like that's what a principle is it's saying okay i'm creating this line and and i'm and i'm gonna say i'm only gonna think about things within this line so it's building a fence around your problem 
it, I think that's such an important thing because as designers, one of the one of the things that gives us the biggest design block is having too many uh, too much ambiguity in the problem and then the solution space. And so as we start to define those principles, we start to create a much smaller solution space that contains just the the right solutions in there like you could potentially iterate and iterate and iterate over all the possible directions you need to or you can say okay based off of our research these are our principles and that mm -hmm. cuts off all these different you know uh paths and now you just can iterate in a single path or a single um vector of of those principles so it, it really does um, help make a better process and good process helps you to create better designs um, on a consistent basis. And that's why people like you and I and other people listening to this uh, obsess over good process is because mm -hmm. that's what's going to, you know, you can talk about moving, you know, that five pixels to the left or right or adding some padding because that, that is helpful feedback. But when you dig into the, to the principle, you can really, um, get to the the right solution much faster because if that's not right then who cares about the the, the initial the final polish yeah like and that's like whenever people have like designer block whenever i've had designer block it's because i haven't immersed myself in the product space and when you immerse yourself in the pro i mean in the problem space and if you immerse yourself in the yeah. problem space it's gonna be very clear like where to focus and then you establish the principles to guide that focus because you're not the only one working on that project. You need, you know, you need the team to be aligned. Like, hey, this is where we're going to focus. This is what we're going to iterate down until further notice. But that gives you so much clarity, and it almost like the solution kind of presents itself, like or at least like the the print. Like at a principled level, like the the, the solution present pre presents itself. Like this is the workflow. We need to optimize. Uh, this is the system that needs to be refactored, and we need to, need to work towards improving that. Um, and that uh, I don't know. This, I, I, like whenever that I've done that, I just know what I'm working on every day. Like I just oh, know yeah. where I'm going. Yeah, and and like when you come up against that, you can always immediately like when you come up against some sort of design block, you can immediately look back and see that there's some ambiguity up the, mm -hmm. the chain of your design process. Either the requirements aren't defined yet and you need to go there or you need to go through the problem space like you said, um, or you haven't really defined you know, your solution space. Like it, it, it always comes up to some kind of ambiguity up the chain. Yeah. And, uh, and that really helps you to kind of unlock your full potential of your designs and just be so much more productive and uh, it's so, so helpful. And so that's why like, adding an, a, a principle about design ethics is only going to help improve your design process, mm -hmm. make make it easier to make decisions about your um, designs, and it's going to save you um, time in the long run and, and create a better experience in the long run. Uh, and I think this is something we could talk about. Like, Oftentimes I see that ethics type things, accessibility, inclusion, is often grouped with design polish. That's the way that a lot of people in the product um, team think about when you bring bring up these kinds of gaps in the, in the product. It's like, okay, yeah, I mean, we'll eventually we'll get to that, you know, we're just trying to create an MVP right now, or <laughs> we're trying to get to the V1, and of course, V2 never comes, or, you know, 
well, okay, well, you know, we have this feature, which, you know, a lot of our, our customers are asking for. Okay, well, you know, and so it never happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, designers feel this all the time with design polish, like in general. Like mm-hmm. We hand off a very polished design. Uh, it gets built. We try to do some design QA, but it's just off. It, you know, all the padding is not perfect as it should be, and it and it shows. Like people feel when uh, I remember like um, walking through an amazing developer. Uh, I got to work with front end developer, and we walked through all the details. And he he was kind of like a little frustrated at first, and then. I would explain to him kind of the why behind each thing, like okay, you know, like it creates a feeling of lay, like, um, of uh, of patterns, and and that makes people help to scan through these different chunks. And when they're all the same, it's more obvious for the brain to understand that these are this. You know, like, I, I kind of like literally yeah. just went through all of it, and so he loved that. And so we went through it, and by the time we were done with all the the nitpicks, and there was a lot, like it was you know, uh, letting heights and, and yeah. spacing and padding, like just little stuff like that. But when you put it all together and he would look at the old and the new, he's like, wow, like that makes such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Right. And so design polish is, uh, is, is, is important. Right. And, but we, we do know that it does take time and there is a, you know, depending on how much your team is attuned to design, it could take them Longer and, and they can make more mistakes rendering your design, and, and there's a there's a certain cost to getting it perfect, uh, or even implementing like some of the specific design ideas you had, maybe a transition or something. So um, I found that when I was dealing with that problem at my past company, I found that oh wow, accessibility especially. Um, is incorporated in, into this and often seen that way is that there, we we need to properly define a roadmap yeah. of for these types of um, attributes of our design. So I went and I wrote out all the different types of attributes um, and gave them like a, a, a priority number. Like okay, these things are P zeros. Um, you know, the contrast for accessibility needs to be there. Basic tab structure needs to be there. Um, you know, uh, as far as design polish, like uh, padding is not important, but like, you know, the user needs to be able to complete these actions and, and everything. So that was like, P, I had a P0 category that I put together. I was like, okay, if we, if we don't have these, I'm not shipping. Like, I'm, I'm gonna quit, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously like as a team, you wanna go over that as a team and say, hey, how do you think about this group as a P0? Like we won't ship unless these, and usually P0s people will, will be able to like agree to. And then have like a P1, like, okay, this is these should be fixed as soon as possible. Um, you know, uh, as soon as possible after we ship or, you know, uh, during the development process. And then you can kind of go through like, you know, other other P levels. And, uh, and then also um, have a discussion with your PM or whoever to add when we'll address the different priority levels of that, uh, of those groups, when, and make them assign it to the roadmap, create tickets and yeah. schedule them. And I find that that was a much more helpful way rather than saying, I want everything right off the bat. Like I want everything to be accessible and amazing. And we need to go back in time and improve all these things. But instead really helping the team understand that you know that you can't do everything at any point in time, Mm -hmm. but here's what is important to not ship without. Here's what's important to do right away, et cetera, et cetera. And um, and so that was really, that was a really helpful tool for me. So what's the P stand for in uh, P0? A priority. Priority, yeah. Uh, so, like, I mean, what you're saying is that the when it comes down to like prioritizing your principles, because you can't get them all done in every like in one release, always prioritize the ethical stuff first. 
Uh, no, not, necess- not necessarily. I mean, like, um, you should have them be one of those line items of like, yeah. okay, what are your P0s for um, your, your ethical uh, mm. issues that you, that, you, that you see and either, either the current product or the thing that you're about to ship mm-hmm. uh, as you're doing tests. Like, those, those should be mapped out and, and agreed to as a team of like, hey, these we will not ship without. These are like P0s. Like, we should literally okay. be freaking out if these things are, are out in production. So that kind of a thing, like, like we do with bugs. And, and that's yeah. another great tool if you want to affect change is file bugs against accessibility issues. Like, uh, you know, and then your team will have to prioritize it and, and have to like ignore it and put it in the ice bucket or whatever, you know, um, uh, methodology you use. So I really find that like ha- having this kind of mentality of the, the priority numbers is effective because engineering teams and product teams kind of understand this already. And so assigning design bugs and uh, accessibility bugs and maybe some ethical bugs in there um, really helps give it um, a great um, object and tool to, to get that to affect change. Jonathan, this has been a really great conversation. Uh, I'm probably going to have to get the book because I don't feel like, I feel like we just scratched the surface. <laughs> of this discussion you should just do a follow-up episode on your podcast and i'll listen to that have you and chris hash it out but uh yeah i'll that, your book sounds awesome um i just have one more question that i ask uh i want to ask all guests it's a it's an iteration but like uh, what is a setback in your career that you're glad that that you're glad that happened and it could be like a personal thing that influenced your career, but like what, what's a setback that you're glad happened? Hmm. Well, that's a tough one. Well, I mean, what, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, I worked at a startup. Um, and one of the nice things about startups is you have this ability to um, kind of wear different hats and be very, very involved in the product. And so I went from being like a senior designer there to becoming like the director of product, which meant like I had to manage engineering work. Uh, There's like one marketing designer I had to manage, but it was mainly just ended up being a lot of like PM work that I had to learn because I had no idea. I'd never been a PM Mm. in my life. So I had to learn like, okay, how do you run a sprint? And how do you like, what, what, what do these engineers estimates mean? And how do I manage their work? And, and so it really, um, you know, it felt like a setback at the time, like, especially by the time I left, I felt that my, my design skills had like grown very small because, you know, 80% of my day was spent on other things and, and less than 20% was spent on actually designing. And it was quickly like putting together some mocks to keep the engineers busy. Um, and so I felt, I felt like a big setback at the time. I was like, man, I wish I would have just like picked another company or said no and done some other things. But looking back, it really, um, it taught me some really important things that have done me well, like obviously leadership, but also, um, how engineers do their work. What is it? What are all, what are all the things that they care about? How do they see the world? And then also with um, product managers, how do they see the world? What are the things that they care about? And now that's ingrained in my brain and I'm able to just work so much better alongside them um, as I want to appreciate their work. And two is like, I speak the same language that they do on those things and we're able to um, really um, work much better together. 
And then also that was the time I wrote my book. So I became, <laughs> I was like, okay, well I need to pursue growth outside of, uh, of work. And so I, I pursued the podcast. I uh, pursued Twitter and Twitter, I, you know, I was able to get a lot of followers there at the time and I was able to pursue writing the book. So, um, so I, that, that felt like a setback at the time, but, um, mm -hmm. now looking back, it was a very fruitful time for me and, and growth in ways that I wasn't thinking about growing. Great. So how could people get a hold of you or follow you? Um, yeah. So speaking of Twitter, um, I'm, I'm pretty active on there, so you can find me at design UX UI. Um, and you can send me a, an email through my website, uh, uitogether.com. Design UX UI, you got that handle? <laughs> yeah, I was going for like SEO. People always like, is, is, that, is that how you think of your, your title? I'm like, no, no, no. I was going for like SEO at the time. I don't know, this was like, you know, many years back. I was like, I know if people search for design UX or UI, I might show up. So that, oh, that's, that's, that's kind of why I chose. I don't know, maybe it worked, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I could definitely see what your principles were right there. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, Jonathan, thanks for being on the show. You have a good one. Yeah, thank you. This was a pleasure. I love your podcast. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Way of Product Design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.